This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, I am so excited for today because we've got Nick Paolella on the program. He is VP of Development at Marcon. Everybody that listens to this program probably knows who Marcon is. Household name, big developer in the city, building really, really beautiful buildings throughout the Lower Mainland. So we're super excited to have Nick on the show. And it's been long overdue. For a very long time, we've had multiple people say, you got to get Nick on the show. And finally, we right. got him on. Marcon's a family business. The origin story is incredible. Right. Better than our family business origin yeah. story. <laughs> I would say. Uh, but one thing about this this conversation is we weave in, in and out of basically any topic I feel like we've ever kind of covered. And we run long. But any topic we've ever really covered on the on the podcast, we throw it, Nick. And every one of his answers, I feel like, man, I want to drill down and have him back and just isolate these right. topics and spend an hour on each. Well, yeah, we talk about the development community, politics of building, scaling a business, opportunities in the market, dealing with zoning, dealing with zoning, why timing is is maybe not everything when it comes to real estate. And my favorite thing about this conversation is Nick seems to kind of challenge a lot of the conventional wisdom around real estate, just in general, right? Whether it's, it's industry practices, or it's investing ideas or concepts. It's just a lot comes out of this where you're like, oh yeah, that's not the standard way. That's not the status quo, but it makes a lot of sense what you're saying. Exactly. Nick's a younger guy. Right. And Marcon's actually a younger company than I think a lot of people would assume. Right. Considering where they are, how high the concrete towers are they're building right now and how successful the, the brand is. But one thing I would say is second generation and he he's clearly got a vision of where he's taking Mark on. And it's, it's really kind of incredible. It is incredible. Before we get to our conversation with Nick, Matt, I should say a couple things. One is we just had the mayor of Nanaimo on Vancouver commercial real estate podcast that was launched earlier this week. So if you haven't listened to our sister show, Vancouver commercial real estate podcast or VCREP with Corey Wright, Go check that one out. It's a great conversation about the future of Nanaimo. Corey, Corey is actually going after every bigwig politician on the island, it seems like. It's kind of incredible. Every week I hear about who the guest is. It's like, next up's JT. Yeah, well, he's looking for a career in politics, clearly, <laughs> with, with, with not only the way he dresses, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, but the amount of politicians he's trying to get on the program. So yeah, no, it's a good episode, though. If you are interested at all in in Vancouver Island, just in general, there's some fantastic content going on on VCREP. So check out that. And then the other thing I'll mention is that we had a lot of people reach out about the Clint Murphy episode about basically it's about fire and real estate investing and fire fat, right? Right. Um, So lots of people reaching out about how to retire through real estate investing. Clint did a great job of unpacking those ideas. So if you haven't listened to that episode, it's two back. 
Go check it out. It's a popular one. Last but not least, Adam, uh, we've been putting our Instagram handle on the show and and it's been growing, you know, decently, I would say. Yeah. A recent sale that you were involved in, a renovation project. We've had yes. a lot of people reach out wanting to know the details. That is forthcoming. We're going to sit down and I'm going to interview you right. about that project, what it looks like, what the challenges were, how partnerships work what the deals look like, all the rest. So stay tuned for that. Fantastic. Well, Matt, this is a long one today and uh, it's a great episode. So many takeaways. Nick Palella, enjoy. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Berquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one-beds to three-beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at marcon.ca slash sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at marcon.ca or follow them at Instagram at marconhomes. Marcon, building for life. Okay, so we're here with Nick Paolella. He is the currently the VP of development at Marcon. How you doing, Nick? Good, thanks. Down in the studio, this is great to have you in, Nick. Thanks so much for coming down. Can you maybe start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm born and raised in the Lower Mainland. I grew up in in Langley. I've been a you know in our family business since I was crawling, and uh, grew up out in the valley. Ended up going out to university out at UBC. And uh, continued to kind of work while I was going to university wherever I could find an opportunity to try to learn and learn both sides of the uh, world while I was growing up in the practical sense and in the academic sense. And getting through that kind of gave me the opportunity to hit the ground running. And, you know, for the last you know decade, I've been full tilt in our business and uh, having a lot of fun. So it's funny because before we went live here, we were talking about your your grandfather actually grew up on the west side. So Langley was a bit of a departure for yeah. your family. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So my dad and his family moved out to from from Vancouver into Langley in the seventies into rural area. And um my dad actually got his start into construction, working on farms, building barns and helping with like agricultural construction. Wow. And, what, and what was the can, in terms of was it just a so Carisdale to, to like rural Langley is a unique move, I guess, in the early 70s. Was it, was there a farming kind of component no, to my, that or no, was it just no, like... No, my grandfather was a hairdresser. 
and that was also a, it's always always a confusion. It's like ah, oh, great, the old man must have come from Italy and yeah, started a growing grapes company, or something. And then, yeah, <laughs> then it built. A, then he built this construction company, and the next generation took it. And the next one, it's not that at all. No, my grandfather was a hairdresser, super successful. Decided to move out to the valley, and my dad started, you know, in his early teenage years, started working on farms and started kind of learning the basic rope of of construction through that. And um, he actually thought he was going to be a welder getting out of high school because there was lots of money to be made welding pipeline in Alaska. And while he was waiting on the BCIT list to get into the program, which at the time was a couple of years, because any blue collar guy who wanted the opportunity to get into like a trade that was at the time quite successful uh, was going to that field. So he was stuck waiting. And over that time, he kind of continued to jump into construction work and uh, framing houses, building barns, jumping on different crews. And then, you know, even within a couple of short years, he started to realize that was going to be more the gig for him. And so the Valley became the growing grounds for Marcon ultimately. And uh, it was good timing because you were talking about the eighties and urban development was just taking root out in the Valley at that time. So lots of the traditionally Vancouver developers who were now going further East I kind of liken it to like folks going to Squamish these days in a way. It was kind of like a new frontier for urban growth for the right reasons. They were coming out there and and actually the building community really hadn't established itself south of the Fraser at that point uh, too too much. Um, You still had a lot of the trades labor force still living in the Coquitlam, Burnaby, East Vancouver area. Of course, we know the dynamics of affordability have shifted that in a major way now. But it meant that developers were coming out to the valley and, and looking for building support out there. And so that, you know, my dad in his early 20s took that opportunity to sit in city council meetings and tap developers on the shoulder and say he was the local guy and he could help them out. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. And yeah, that's funny because I was thinking Marcon had kind of a potentially a deeper lineage, but it's... No. It's... No, no. My dad founded things uh, 37 years ago now. And I think Marcon was not even much of an intention. I think it started by spray painting a sign on the side of a site trailer. And uh, I think it was originally it was Mark Construction and it needed to fit on a sign. So he spray painted Mark on with yellow and black and uh, the rest is history. (laughs) That's that's fantastic. Like one of the things I I think about is, you know, you said that basically since you were crawling, you've been you've been immersed in kind of the company. And it's interesting because a lot of people that are are brought up in a family business, you go one of two ways, right? You kind of either embrace the business or you you resist it, or at least that's what seems to be a common trajectory for people. Why why real estate? Mm. You know that that one is one I've thought about that a lot. I think I think it is a big thing that people trip up on in the advent of family business, where sometimes people in kind of new you know younger generations are are kind of forced with the dilemma of trying to fit themselves into a career path that is kind of destined for them, that doesn't work for them, but they do it because of some driver of, you know, appeasing the family, perhaps lifestyle considerations, what have you. And that can be really difficult, right? And I think I've had the great fortune, and I, it's, I think my brothers as well, I have two 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 brothers. I think we've we've all had the fortune of finding our path into the second generation of our business really organically. And yeah, we just, we just had the benefit of an upbringing where kind of learning about, you know, initially construction, 
and then into the real estate side of things was really was very fluid. You know, it was just part of it was part of our life. We grew up on a big farm. We were constantly building things on the farm and work was just part of our our life in that regard. So there was no fear of getting things done and learning how these steps in construction go. And then and then it was just exposure to it where we had constant opportunity to see what my dad had going on at the time. And it was a very tight knit group of people for many years who were who were helping to build the company that we had great personal relationships with. A lot of these folks who are similar to my dad's age, raised families alongside ours. And so we just had some great, you know, great relationships and kind of an era where it was never forced. It was just something that we were just immersed in and that we all got to embrace in a different way. And, you know, I had a particularly kind of keen curiosity for how the business itself worked. And, you know, as I grew up, kind of to learn beyond the construction was the real estate development activity we had and what that entailed. And so I got the opportunity actually pretty pretty early on to start learning that. Well, I was probably still in like early high school. I started learning the ropes from a couple of guys who were worth it with us in the formative years of our development capacity, which is probably a decade preceding when we started construction. And so I kind of started writing the gauntlet of performers and numbers and the basic fundamentals of the market and all of those things when I was probably like 13, 14. So it was a great leg up, but it was all, it all just was fluid. It was, if we had days off, we were working, it was working on a site or it was learning in the office. It was just, it was just embracing it and it felt right. It just never felt like, you know, for me personally, like I was on a path that was anything other than what I absolutely loved and was engaged with. So I guess I was fortunate that way. One thing that strikes me and we've talked to other companies that have scaled quite quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we're, we're talking Mark on here from kind of the eighties, like tapping people on the shoulder. Hey, I, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. we can help out in the Valley to kind of, you know, I think Clark and Como, there's yeah. all these concrete high rises now that Marcon's <laughs> doing that everybody knows about. I'm just curious, growing up, like that level, that pace mm-hmm. of growth, kind of what it was like family life. Like, Actually, it was, it was wonderful. Like I thought we got a great, like we've got, we had great access to my parents, both my parents and their engagement in our upbringing, despite the fact that the business was growing. I think that was really founded on growth that was generated as a result of the great relationships my dad had established with a number of developers in the region who basically, you know, the outcome was as, as they grew, we grew. And we, of course, took on new opportunities. And, and for many years, for many years now, we've been kind of, you know, passing on more opportunities than we take on because, you know, scalability is a really important thing to be mindful of or you can, you can burn yourself. And so our kind of, you know, the, the growth of the company over the years, it was incremental, Qu- quick, I guess, when you think of it in hindsight, every two, three years, you're doing something more than you thought you were going to be doing. Right. Uh, I think that, I, I, you know, I said that to, I was talking about that with my dad not long ago. I said, you know, it feels like as long as I've been around every two, three years, the complexion of things were just have been kind of immensely more than we were planning. Not that is not a bad thing, not that we're not handling it. It's just that we don't have kind of a maniacal growth plan to be more, do more than anybody or kind of sense some arbitrary benchmark. We just want to do good work, build good quality homes and, and workplaces for folks. And then, and then, you know, the opportunity to spur themselves on if you've got good people, et cetera. So I think, you know, you go way back, you know, to, you go near the beginning, it was really firstly like foundational on the relationships that were established, which we were doing right by people trusted us to deliver on their needs at the time in construction. 
that led into real estate development partnerships, and then it led into regional growth. We followed people where they went in the region. We found investment in those places as well. And then the scale kept growing. I mean, regionally, the scale of development's been growing for years, right? I mean, you see that the, the, when we started doing towers and the building towers in the early 2000s, like your typical tower was like 18 to 30 stories. Sure, right. And now they're, you know, 40 to 60 regularly. And right. So, so, you know, the scale is, is this much kind of, you know, it's partly intentional, partly opportunistic, and it's partly that the industry is that it's just the built form in, in the built environments changing. And, and so scale is coming with it. So, so yeah, no, I, I think, you know, as we grew through that, we were watching all these accomplishments. And I remember, you know, just, we were fascinated by some of these projects, which were kind of, you know, became signature kind of milestones in our growth. It was a, it was a new scale of kind of multifamily. It was, I, we were kind of one of the early riders. We were the, one of the early builders in six story wood when that came around. Uh, when we got into towers, we actually developed the tower ourselves so that others knew we could do a tower and it became very fluid. We didn't, we weren't waiting to prove it. We just did it ourselves. And then people had that confidence in us. So we had those milestones. We built some really interesting commercial uh, real estate and developed it uh, over the years that flagged other kind of milestones for us. So I guess, you know, I definitely followed it pretty closely as a kid. And like, sometimes people joke when I kind of recall the past and the issues of the past, et cetera. And they go, you weren't even around then. You weren't even working then. Like, how are you even pulling these off the top <laughs> yeah. of your head? I said, well, I listened. I, I was I was around enough to hear where, where the issues were. And what I was happened. in the backseat of the car. Exactly. Right. So <laughs> it was like, and I, I wasn't, I didn't have headphones in or I wasn't plugged into an iPad or something. So I don't know. I, you just, you just, you just kind of absorb it. You sponge it in. Right. And that, that history has actually paid, played it, paid, paid a lot of dividends out and just, you know, you think being early on in your career, you know, you can make lots of mistakes and you can learn a lot. And I think having, the context and a bit of the experience kind of helps buffer some of your problem solving, you know, as you live it day to day. You know, one thing that I was curious in asking, you kind of spoke to it, but the development industry in, in Vancouver seems like, you know, very high stakes mm. and hyper competitive, right? And it, it seems like, you know, that, that trajectory, I, I guess I'm wondering if, if you had to isolate kind of a few kind of things that Marcon has done right to kind of to grow into what it is, kind of mm. a household name, what those have been? Well, it's interesting. Maybe maybe later we can talk about what high stakes and competitiveness because I have a slightly different perspective on, oh, interesting. on, on that. But maybe that's because I haven't been exposed to anything different, just living in this industry to date. But like at the end of the day, I think any business, any industry has to be focused on the customer. And, you know, speaking for real estate development, let's set aside our construction business for a second or clients, the person we're building with and still the customer, which is part of what's kind of been a huge thing for our measurement of quality is like, we care about that. And even if we're building it for someone else versus developing it, we care about that consumer as much because it's our brand that covers all of these projects, right? right? right. Um, but I think it's, it's firstly looking at like really the kind of the foundational legacy our buildings leave from a quality perspective, from a timelessness perspective, there's such a series of choices you make through a development and construction process that I think people take for granted, which is kind of like, you could call it the high load, the high road, the low road, you know, uh, the value engineering decision. Do you go down a rabbit hole on a small issue 
just to make sure you made the right decision or do you say it doesn't matter and you and you and you move you move forward i think you know foundationally our strength has come out of building good product with a focus on delivering something that the homeowner the initial homeowner will be proud of and and subsequent end users down the line are going to be satisfied with and ultimately you know get everything they need out of a home to enjoy their lives and so if we lose sight of that i think we lose we lose the war as a whole you could put all kinds of lipstick on the real estate development kind of activities out there you could be ingenious with rezonings you could be sharp on your front end with you know marketing sales endeavors but i think it's really the it's really the fundamental piece of making the right design choices that influence people's outcomes and ultimately delivering a quality product that to us is like there's a resiliency to that that's the thing that if things weren't as buoyant in the market people would be probably looking closer at in my view and we'd rather build for the day when someone stops and wants to look at a detail understand why we've done something and they want to not have that headache after they've lived in a building you know 5 10 years down the road even if people don't care about it when they're on a fast floor selling units in a hot market that's not really what we're about and so i think that's kind of that's an anchoring position for us that that we try to keep in light of all the other pieces that have made you know contemporary development and it is a quite sophisticated industry so there's lots of different layers that you have to consider when you're putting these projects together and just just one just to circle back here different perspective on high stakes and competitive i'm kind of curious yeah. to hear well, what that well i was going to i was like. thinking about that as well and mm-hmm. it seems like you know the it almost ties in with like the maniacal plan because I think a lot of people think developers mm-hmm. are kind of selfishly moving yeah. through the market, trying to win a, a in a competitive marketplace. But if you visit UDI, you realize that, you know, it's a pretty mm-hmm. welcoming uh, collaborative community in many mm-hmm. cases as well. And I think we're all lemmings. Someone sticks their head out, you know, their neck out there half an inch, you know, they do something different a little bit. And then all of a sudden it becomes the talk of the town and everybody in, you know, six months has adopted the same practice. You know, right. it's, a, it's a funny one. And yeah, I mean, I, I'd say the reason I feel like com- competition is a funny one in our in our industry here is Vancouver, proportionately to its scale, has a lot of growth for good reason with population growth that we have to um, deal with as a region you know, year over year. And that that reality being seemingly the case for decades ahead. You know, without that, you know, I think the pool of developers and just the general, all the supporting pieces of this 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 industry uh, would not be nearly as uh, robust as they are. Vancouver, I think, is a funny ecosystem where the land market is very tight. There's sophistication in terms of underwriting and understanding municipal context and, you know, a lot of different details that actually makes it a hard, there's a lot of barriers of entry for others to jump in who are kind of do conventional real estate in other places and not vice versa. There's often Vancouver developers who go to other places and do quite well because there, there's there's a tightness in that. But in the literal sense of competition, I don't really feel it. I, I find that, and this, is, this has been something that we've been attempting to think through and move the needle on. I'm not going to profess that we've got it mastered or that we're even close to kind of getting to the end of our journey on this, but it, it just, it occurs to me that there's been practices in this industry for 20, 30 years, like kind of since like circa 1990s, in terms of the way 
our customer facing process goes that have really just been augmented by like small pivots. And those small pivots just get echoed by almost everybody and gets becomes common practice very quickly after some risk, a little bit of risk is taken. I don't know if the way we've done things for 20 to 30 years is actually matching the way a contemporary consumer wants to purchase their goods and make their decisions, their buying decisions. If you compare that to like many different industries and how we're reaching out to customers, how people have the opportunity to absorb information, how they can learn and get content without committing themselves to interactions with, you know, salespeople or people trying to push them down the funnel. And then ultimately, sure, I mean, home buying is a major decision for folks and it, as a, either as, a, as an end user or an investor. So it requires a greater level of service. But I think there's a bunch of touch points along the way as we deliver that service from someone learning about a project to getting through the sales uh, process and ultimately to delivery of a home and, and hopefully good customer service is that I think we just, we have a rhythm in this industry that we think we've got down pat, but I think it's mostly complacency. We've got it. And I think it's complacency because things have been selling pretty well for about 30 years. Like it's not, not really ever stopped. And so it, I don't know how often there's pause to kind of muse about what could be different. And so that's, that's, we're starting that. I, we don't, we don't have it figured out. We want to make moves that hopefully get us closer to the way people want to consume information and learn about, you know, what it is developers do and the product they deliver. In that same vein, are, are there markets or other markets or other cities that you look to for inspiration or other industries actually too? Mm, there's definitely other industries, but I would, there's other, I would say there's other, like there's a cross section of different uh, platforms that that different industries use for their sales processes, for their information sharing that we try, we're trying to follow. We're trying to understand how something as substantive as a real estate purchase can fit its way into simpler methods of communication, simpler methods of digestion that I think other industries have done uh, pretty well. I mean, that, you know, to get super trendy on it, uh, you know, in, in this conversation would be like saying Tesla has reinvented the car buying uh, process quite a lot. And, right. and that, that, that was, I, I think where like the, that was an industry previously full of sacred cows. It was like, there's only one way to do this. And pretty much everybody was doing a variation on a theme in, in my view. And, you know, these guys disrupted things, so many different elements. And in fact, we, we, we've interviewed folks who have had roles within Tesla for our organization. And it's fascinating where like one of the things that they adopted was really like, like just failing fast and recognizing those, you know, where what's not working in a process, what's not working in a customer facing or, or an intercompany kind of workflow that they're trying to establish and they fix it. And they just try to, you know, ask the question, are we doing this because it makes sense? Or are we doing it just because everybody, this is all we've been ever doing. Ask that question, think about whether there's a solution, try it on for size and then pivot, you know, and, and then find, find, you don't need to be revolutionary. You just find avenues for progress that might be ultimately better for the customer. And that's, that's an interesting pursuit. And that's why the competition thing for me is a funny one. I just feel like, yes, it's competitive, competitive-ish. I think everybody is super focused on delivering kind of the, you know, the most relevant product to the market at the right time frame, making sure, you know, in the, in the vein of being, competi being competitive, everybody is doing the same. I think that's the issue. Mm -hmm. And so that in other industries, competition 
kind of uh, expresses itself differently, you actually have people trying to deviate quite significantly from the from the herd in order to differentiate their product or to get to the consumer a different way. And I, I feel like that's the missing, that's a link that just hasn't been squared off. And it would be fun, not just for ourselves, but I feel like it would be fun if there's some other, there's some folks in this industry and in then over the next generation that kind of reevaluate some of these norms and see if there's a way to, to you know, crack a different code. And, and not to go too far off of the real estate kind of topic here, but I know you mentioned you have a Tesla just for people out there that are like, okay, how actually in terms of purchasing a Tesla, how is it different than, you know, most people think of, do I even want to go onto a car lot because, you know, pressure sales and some guy following up with me and, and all that type of thing. Presumably that's kind of the, yeah. the thing you're talking about, but can you just talk <laughs> about how funny. it actually. It's really funny you say that because. No, I didn't walk in here and say I have a Tesla. It was, it was, it was, <laughs> that was, it was, that was the first thing it you was, said. It was Terrishery do another thing we were talking about. Let's just be clear. It was just like, you actually drove in and scratching their heads to be like, yeah. <laughs> heard some weird stories. Uh, no. So good fluke. Um, I actually, I actually had a terrible experience with Tesla, which was actually what it made me fascinated in this whole thing. I bought my car right when they were like peaking with demand locally in like 2019 and they were just overwhelmed with with delivery and they hadn't sorted sorted out the the flow and so it was actually through that it was funny there was so many things i was optimistic about through that process that ended up not coming to life very well that was i thought i found fascinating but the interesting part was the resilience for them to change their processes and was actually through interviewing some folks who work within that organization and following it over the last couple of years you can actually see there's like fully acknowledgments of where mistakes were made and what they're going to do differently. And so it doesn't, you know, a group like that, they don't lose, lose their resolve, even if there's a hiccup to just keep pushing. Yeah. That's something that I think happens in this industry. You know, it's like someone tried this. Oh, it didn't go over very well. Nobody's going to do it. Whereas it's like, well, yes, there was an attempt made at something different. It didn't hit the ground in the way folks were wanting it to be, and this could be marketing related, this could be product related, right? Someone tried a new building feature that fell flat for some reason, or it didn't resonate with the consumer or whatever. And it's like, you be it begs the question of like, well, is it worth, do you stop there and just say, well, we're never going to go down that path again? Or do you keep pursuing and find a way to kind of unlock that utility, but just with the focus to make it, make it better? Hmm. Yeah. And I, I always think, it, I guess the stakes are, are pretty high. And, and you, you think in trying to understand why there is a resistance to that in the development community, is it reflected in the feedback loop maybe from the people purchasing the homes or is it, is it just something that falls flat? And like, I'm just trying to understand why do you I, think well, that is? The, I think the feedback loop, I could be, I could, I could be wrong, but from our experience and from the folks we've worked with over the years in different capacities, consultants and different partners on the sales side, I actually don't know how robust the customer feedback loop is. That's actually one of the issues. It's one of the innovation things. It's like there's other industries doing really fascinating things when it comes to customer feedback. And I think I think that the way customer feedback is sought so far in industry is somewhat elementary. And it goes back to that point that because of population growth, because of the fact that there's a machine turning in terms of growth. Um, you don't need it. That That people haven't really sought to question that. And then I think development organizations like so, so there's, there's small development shops that have done really well. There's large ones that have done really well. Interestingly enough, I, I think, you know, in our observations is they still generally lack robustness. 
you know, development companies can have, you know, they have the capital first and foremost to be able to, 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 to play the game. You know, they build up hopefully talent within their organization to execute. And the talent is very difficult to find these days, but you know, that happens. And along the way, there's, you know, there's a, there's a big focus on project and there's some focus on systems. There's some focus on kind of building a, a backbone to, you know, development companies, but I don't think it's as enduring as other industries. It's not like, because the process tends not to be too standardized developments, each and in their own right are bespoke. They're all different. There's different approaches for every project for different reasons. It's all, it's all valid. But I think like the, the back end spine to like how things function and how do we get as much efficiency within the organizations themselves, I think because it at face value doesn't feel like it is that repetitive that we're just scratching the surface when it comes to optimization versus industries where, where their products are way more homogenous, they can go deeper. So there's a sweet spot, I think, in development mm. that, and again, because the product always sells, you know, if, you know, if people are competent, of course, but if generally because the product ultimately moves, you can still succeed, you can still succeed or fail, but ultimately developers don't end up having units that they can't sell right. at the end of the day. And so I think it's just that it's that, it's that full cycle of coming back around. It's the feedback loop. It's the, what do we need to do better? What needs to be optimized? You know, how do we take our practices that get for, uh, you know, the approval process, construction process, uh, sales and marketing, customer service, all these things. And like, there's been diminishing returns to invest a lot in trying to make those things better because ultimately it's hard to see when you're only looking at the economics of the project. Outcomes. Right. Yeah. So in many ways, it's almost like innovation is a victim of market success. I, I feel like it. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And it, it's not like, and this is all saying that generally this market builds fantastic quality product. Mm -hmm. We're actually, I believe we're delivering really good uh, as a standard in this industry, delivering really good quality to the customer. I think everybody should pat themselves on the back for that. That's as, and I say everybody, I mean all stakeholders. It comes from the city. I feel grateful we're in a region where there is there is a standard, kind of a minimum bar for urban design and placemaking and whatnot. You go to even even places like we're studying Toronto quite a lot. It's like there's just it's a different threshold. They're the the same expectations. They're not they don't uphold the same expectations through the chain. So from the beginning with the entitlements and the design process, there's definitely a dialogue, but it's more combative. And ultimately, I I think there's lots of compromises and in, in outcomes for city making. And I think here there's more integrity in that system, both within the planning community and in the interface with developers. That then evolves into obviously product and product design. We do things here. I, I think if you look at some of the product in other cities in North America, we've studied lots. It's like the average quality new home product that's delivered to in Metro Vancouver is at a completely different level than than many other cities. And um, that's probably because it is a tight market. Maybe that is comp competition at play, mm -hmm. building quality. But I would say like, you know, if you took a Toronto condo investor to average condo investor and moved or, or buyer, home buyer, you move them to Vancouver to look at a presale, they would think this stuff is fantastic. And conversely, someone who's a layman in, in, in the, you know, has no industry knowledge, just isn't in the in the interest of getting into new a new home in Vancouver going to Toronto would see quality holes galore like they would really at at the at the at the consumer level what the expectation is set here they, I think people would go to other places and be disappointed with the results they just there isn't as much integrity in the average you know product delivery mm -hmm. 
And so that's that's good. That's a good outcome. I think that's all, you know, it's all a good thing that this industry actually has set a relatively high bar for what the, you know, what the average average home should be looking like for folks. Do you see that as an opportunity for other markets? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I see it as like a long runway ahead. This is the beginning of a new generation for our company. I say new, and uh, not just in our family context, but like people. You know, we're, we've, we've been able to assemble a fantastic team. I feel so grateful for that. I think it's like, it's really foundational. Like you, you have to, you have to have people who want to buy into the, to the same outcomes, support it, even, especially when it comes to some of this, like lifting this, like if you're in, trying to innovate a bit, someone could look at that because with the industry norms at play, they could just look at that as noise from just doing the core job that they've learned working at two other companies they've been at, right? They just say, look, why do we need to do this? Or it doesn't sure. really matter. They don't really care to double down on that piece. So you kind of first and foremost have to kind of like get to the headspace of a team that sees that, yes, we're going to continue to move things. We don't need to reinvent the wheel overnight. I would say like generationally, like think of it as like the upgrades you see on your phone. Like let's think of our product in a generational standpoint. Let's try to say, hey, we're doing this work in this band of two, three years. We're going to try to apply these standards. We're going to try to raise the bar to this level. Let's let's figure out our way to do that. And then and then let's look at the stuff that's beyond in the next cycle and let's try to see where we go at the next stage and not try to fix everything at once or try to pretend like we have all these answers. Just be willing to like dig in. And you can't do that alone. You have to have people with the fortitude and interest to like dig to drill into these things. So that's a huge part of the ability to look sure. at some of this stuff. Interesting. Interesting. And and so if I understand in terms of long runway, it's it's Metro Vancouver, but potentially other markets as well, kind of expanding. Yeah, yes, yeah. So yeah, going back to that, uh, we're looking at a number of other markets, and I back to this long runway idea is yeah, you have to have the team, and then with that, we feel like we're gonna we're we're, we're building capacity that will lend itself to distilling a strong backbone of how we do things. When I was going back to like processes and systems and operational kind of focus, it's like build the backbone and then see where that, that gives you scalability mm -hmm. and then work where else could we go? And so for the last couple of years, we actually have a focus on this. We have resources in house already that just focus solely on new markets, but we went with it with the long game, long game in mind. We said, okay, look, we're going to start doing due diligence on markets in North America, you know, start with obvious ones that we thought there were interests for various factors, start there and just study if there's a reason for us to compete, like, why would you go? It's not, again, it's not like a big maniacal plan for us. We don't really care where things evolve over the years ahead in terms of scale. You know, we have to have rational outcomes, good business decisions, and, and actually want to enjoy doing what we're doing. If you don't have that, then, you know, might as well throw in the towel. So, so based on that, we're looking at all these markets saying, is there a reason to even go there? It's going to cause us, there's learning curves, there's all kinds of anguish and growing pains you go through is what we do here, what we're trying to like distill as a practice within our organization, all, all sides of it, is this going to give us kind of some new tools to take to a market and do, do something better than just compete with everybody else? Is there a part of the market? We're, I don't know, know much about this in the Marcon side, often because it's not as, as widely known, but we've really spent a lot of time um, diversifying our work over the last four or five years. So we've got condo, rental, office, hotel, student housing, seniors, retail, like a whole, the whole spectrum of basically real asset classes. And we're not trying to do too much, but we're trying to drill in to really be sharp with opportunity. So when we go to these new markets, it's like, what's our reason to, you know, 
what is this market all about? Where could we be competitive? And so we kind of try to first look at it, the lenses of these asset classes, which our group is digging in on and saying, okay, Toronto's a great example. We've been studying that for a couple of years and it was like, there's, we don't see a reason to go try to buy tower sites in Toronto. There's lots of good, sophisticated players there. And we're just going to be one of the mix if we try to go into that at this point. Maybe down the road as things evolve, we have some competitive edge in a certain way. Maybe, but like that didn't seem there. We've looked at other forms of development within that landscape, which we feel like there's a different reason to compete. And so that's where we're focusing our attention. So it's all for the long game to say that we don't have to jump tomorrow. We've been fortunate enough to commit resources to these investigations. Part of it actually gives you a lot of context for things you could take away and learn and bring back here. Sure. The other side of it is, is dig, 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 figure out a really robust reason to do something, recognizing that there's an infrastructure you have to build if you want to do it right. And then we'll jump at some point into these spaces, I suspect, if it all works out and um, put our best foot forward. Hey, everyone. Pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah. You know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer, and they're looking for both donations, and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. Maybe changing gears a little bit and maybe moving on to some conversations around the the market itself in Vancouver, maybe as kind of a, a launching point Can we talk about the last two years just in the market and uh, COVID and a a crazy run that the market's gone on? Were you surprised by the past two years? Um, I think COVID, COVID in and of itself, the way I look at risk in the Metro Vancouver context is there's a stability in the growth story of this region. But all of that is notwithstanding any sort of like major global event that could change, you know, the course of the trajectory of the real estate industry here. I think the actually think global factors have a greater outcome than on people's comfort level in buying, their confidence in buying, than it is just the sheer 
reality that people continue to move here. So, you know, we did we did see a dip in just immigration through COVID a bit. Of course, that but our projections have changed and we're back on to normalizing and growing. I don't know. To me, I wasn't really that surprised that the recovery came quickly. I recall it was just before COVID started. So it was like January, December, January, February, 2019, 2020. The market was fairly soft before that. And that was coming off the backs of the, you know, some of the policy changes and interest rate fluctuations of 2017, 2018. We're getting to 2019. Everybody wanted to have that optimism that things were going to, it was really confidence again. It was like, not like people aren't moving here. It's just confidence in the market. We're feeling that. And then all of a sudden, you know, there were a couple big launches right at the beginning of 2020 where people were like, it's back. It's back. Yeah. And then of course, COVID came that put things at a standstill for a period of time. But this is the momentum of this marketplace. This is the respect we've got to have for the fact that we're a growing region is that the end of the day, we have to meet that demand at some point. So, you know, with rates falling again, significantly again, making, you know, accessibility into housing more attainable for folks with the fact that we were already kind of deficit in supply in, in what the industry was building through 27, 2018, mm-hmm. it kind of, I guess, you know, during that, it wasn't like we had a crystal ball in the, in the moment, you know, of the, the, the peak of fear with COVID in the spring of 2020. But, but I, I, I really wasn't surprised as we got into the back end of 2020 and into 2021 that we were seeing that performance because at the end of the day, people had to, they had to find a reason to see confidence in this market because they could they can only waylay their 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 lifestyle decisions for so so long like investor or or end user these are people's lives we're talking about they're waiting for the the family formation they're waiting you know or they're anticipating that or they're they've been saving for for an upsize you know i think people want new housing opportunities to evolve and change their lives and and they don't have freely stock available when there's population growth so i think good time or bad time with all these global economic forces at play, I think at a point people realize they need to move on from that, uh, from that fear and move into this is, you know, practically the life I need to make a life for myself. And I need to kind of get get off my feet and make it make some choices and how I'm going to spend their their means, right. So I, I could I can appreciate why the resiliency ended up being there. And, you know, it's a history that we've lived through in Vancouver, we saw the same thing in 2008, you know, was not great for a period of time, but really not that long. Um, and I think for similar reasons. Interesting. Just thinking about the Metro Vancouver real estate market, I'm curious to kind of hear how you, how, how Marcon, I guess, or, uh, or your role as VP of development, how you look at the various sub markets and, <laughs> and where you see the opportunities and, and, you know, what a deal looks like mm-hmm. um, and how, how Marcon's approaching that. Yeah, for sure. Um, were you going to say something? I was just going to say in the residential context because oh, right, yeah. clearly you, you guys are working yeah. in many different asset classes. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, that's totally fair. I, what, what I will say, though, about the diversification is, is I, it, the insights on residential is that because we are in a relatively land, like a small land constrained marketplace and people have specialized often in being condo developed, multifamily developers, from the history we look at, we, we've made this conscious choice where we see folks have grown, development companies have grown over the year, but they actually generally hit a critical mass. Like only so many doors get launched or built every year by one company. They serve these kind of like peaks sometimes, but generally like there's a critical mass. And like what 
we feel we deserve is that actually what ends up people happening is they amass capital and then they just buy more land to bank, but they're really only turning out so much into the market at any given time. And so we kind of took that and said, well, we love this region. We believe in the region for all kinds of different reasons from a real estate perspective, not just residential. And do we want to just keep building a deep residential condo pipeline or do we want to look at the region, the qualities in the submarkets and make choices about whether we just want to keep building a bank of land or do we want to operationalize more, more uh, growth in different areas? And I think mixed use is a huge piece of this because um, for us, when we look at the, when we look at opportunities across the region, you know, transit orientation is, is huge from us. I'm sure there's been a dozen people on this podcast who've sure. <laughs> said, the, said the same <laughs> But it's true. I mean, it's just it's just kind of fundamental to just sustainability and like just good practice <laughs> for as a region to be focusing around that. So trans, transit orientation or some other factor. And I'll say it's like it's got to be geographic. So it's got to be like some other kind of geographic reason that a place matters. You know, like people ultimately are pulled to 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 places for all kinds of reasons. But part of it is it's like the qualities of the lived experience. Right. So being beside transit is a huge, it, it changes a dimension for your life, right? And it gives you flexibility in all kinds of different ways economically and with your time. And similarly, the other, the other choice is you pick a geography that it, it, its characteristics, its special factors also augment people's lives. They're making a choice to be in that community because there's something it affords because you can hike in the mountains or kayak on the waterfront or what, whatever it is. And so we kind of weigh out both. You know, we've been in the White Rock areas, you know, for years, because for the right reason, for the qualities of that community, that we see that the growth that happens there making sense. And we've done well there. At the same time, we have this general affinity for transit orientation. We've had a big presence in the Tri-Cities, uh, Burnaby, uh, Vancouver, and that'll continue. And and for years, like I, like we've built, I think we did the numbers, we've built a couple thousand homes on the North Shore. And we've developed several hundred. I don't think people even really realized we've just chipped away at over the years. It's like that's a, that's another market where we just see there's the livable qualities within that that market where, you know, we continue to keep our eye open just because we see that as enduring and we see why from a lifestyle choice people want to want to want to be there. It makes sense if we're thinking kind of currently. Do you have a, a sub region or an area that you're you're really excited about? So we have lots of activity in Vancouver, but we we tend to not. I'm going to say waste our time. It's maybe not a nice phrase, but we tend to not waste our time with trying to worry about being like the first in speculator who got a cheap deal on land on Camby before Camby was approved or phase three was approved or Broadway's right. approved. It's like, I feel like people put themselves through like arbitrary stress, you know, totally. sitting on the fence about what's <laughs> totally. going to happen. I'm like, you know, I'm going to bet that I can probably get a site with not much of a difference in cost at the right time when the when the dust is settled. And we've seen that evidence of that. We did, uh, you know, Marple plan. We did a whole bunch of Marple and we didn't try to speculate on a bunch of stuff preemptive of the plan approval. West End, we did the same. Canby Corridor, phase three, we've done the same. In fact, I think people got bit on a lot of these areas where they were like overpaying for stuff, predicating kind of assumptions that make sense. So, you know, certainly, you know, one of the big lenses we look at is I see the entitlement process is probably the riskiest part of our entire development process because it tends to, there's outcomes from the approval process that can like transcend any sort of rational thinking. Sometimes it can transcend like 
risk mitigations that you're going to put in place. You have to really be mindful of like, and it's not like we aren't, we haven't taken risks through approval processes, but, you know, looking at municipalities where you, you know, both the timing of when you might make an investment in the municipality, where is it in its journey with a, with a, with a long range planning kind of process on, on an, in an area, whatnot, or whether it's the political climate or whether sometimes, sometimes it's literally just shifts in the bureaucracy. It's, you know, new, new leadership, whatnot. It was like, we try to follow that to kind of try to inform our choices, which is why, you know, this is a big end around to say, we don't put dots on the map and say, I know, you know, I, I've uh, colleagues, uh, friends of mine in the industry, you know, sometimes they put dots on a map and say, we want to do this much in this market this year and this much in this market and kind of get very, you know, uh, literal about where they want to place bets in an ideal world. And we, we don't, um, we don't take that approach. And, and just for listeners, when you say entitlements and, and the process, can you talk about an example of like, not necessarily mark on, but where somebody, you know, where, where things didn't work out the way people were expecting? Like what is, what is an example of, of where risk mitigation didn't, didn't work? Yeah. So there's been areas in Vancouver where inclusionary zoning has been, uh, inclusionary zoning, meaning social housing contributions as part of condo development or below market rentals, part of rental development. There's been areas where folks have made bets, assuming that the policies are going to fall in a certain direction. And then, and then things change. So one of the, you know, a good example was West End. Uh, there was, a, in the planning process, there was a commitment for delivering a certain amount of social housing in many of the condo developments in the West End. Some areas were explicitly zoned. They were actually, re, as part of the West End plan process, it would, they were, sites were actually rezoned through that process, which was really good because it took the rezoning sure. piece of the equation. Another site they didn't, and I'm not actually sure what, why, because uh, the context was really similar from a built form perspective. But, you know, the policy was generally the same. And going through the process, the West End plan process, the dialogue was pretty transparent about what they were trying to achieve. But then at the end of that process, when the policy was written for these areas, the city added, a, added an element to the, to the plan, which said, your contribution is 20% of your density on your site being social, social housing. And we're also going to evaluate that contribution versus the land market and see if there isn't still a land lift that we should extract. And then you would also owe us a cash payment. So there were folks who are going to going in buying sites, assuming the policy was a certain way, and then kicking and screaming later saying, but why am I writing you a check? Like I'm giving you this contribution. This is crazy, whatever. And I was like, well, there's arguments to say there was some craziness in the, in, in, in the, you know, thought process around why that was necessary, like for from as an extraction. But at the same time, it was explicit. It wasn't like they hid it, you know, in, in the policy, it was there. Mm-hmm. And so that's the, that's the nuances piece is like, you know, what point do you want to jump in and how much of a change in your outcome could, could these sites kind of, could a site have as a result of policy change? Canby phase three was similar. There were some out, there were some changes in the densities kind of prescribed in Canby phase three as it evolved that affected some sites. And it goes on and on. Sometimes it's bonus density um, uh, policy that's changing. So, you you know, you're buying a site in one context with another, you know, with some policy context changing in the background that can kind of switch gears on things. So we'll mm-hmm. watch that. It's like the plan might be approved, but if we know that there's a big shift in the way, you know, there's going to be, you know, taxation or, you know, fees and charges, et cetera, we'll watch that to say, well, maybe we shouldn't just assume that nothing is going to be that materially different from what exists today. Right. So mm-hmm. it's sometimes it, explicit, sometimes it's not as explicit. Right. 
It actually, it makes a lot of sense to wait for the dust to settle in, in many ways. And also, you know, to miss kind of the hype machine and wait till the market kind of is proven. Mm-hmm. And then if the numbers make sense, the numbers make sense. And I think, you know, we've had our successes with the right, you know, buying things at the right time um, for sure. But I don't know. I feel like life's too short sometimes to try to like go through the anguish of speculation. I don't personally, I just don't see it. I feel like there's other areas we can add value. We can, you know, earn our share to this process and get good outcomes for everybody. And I feel like that's like obviously on a much smaller scale, but a lot of the kind of mom and pop investors listening to this show, and I don't think we talk about it as much, but if you kind of follow along, it's like buy right, buy right, buy right in this way that it creates this kind of stressful, mm-hmm. you know, deal of the century type yeah. type scenario where if you're not going to do an amazing deal, then you don't buy. And it's like, you know, either you never buy or you put it's yourself a lot through of, this. It becomes inc- a lot of fence sitting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And especially in a city like Vancouver, yeah. where it's like... It, it also suggests a very short runway on anything, right? You have to buy now. And because if you don't, you're going to miss the opportunity. But as we all know in real estate, and especially in these areas that are starting, it's boring to watch the yeah. an area evolve, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it should be, <laughs> yeah. you know? No, I hear you. Yeah. No, I totally follow that. You know, you know, just thinking about that kind of, you know, changes in politics, the bureaucracy, policy, you know, all these things that you're kind of dealing with. And I feel like, you know, we have Tom Davidoff on all the time mm-hmm. who talks about kind of the, the lack of transparency with community and many contributions and how it's, you know, there's ways to make it more transparent. I and did I think, not do well in his course. I, was, okay. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> certain people agree with him and others don't. We get, we get feedback uh, uh, coming both ways uh, uh, when we have Tom on the show, but that's funny. It's all that, good. Uh, they'll, they'll bring you back for an honorary PhD, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'm wondering your, your thoughts on kind of how, how politics and, and public sentiment, which is, is, I guess ever changing, but always fairly negative. It mm-hmm. seems towards real estate and and the development community. But but how do politics and and public sentiment factor into into how you perceive building better cities or building Vancouver as a better city than it is? Currently? Yeah, no, fair enough. I mean, I I guess this is actually another area where it's similar to like the uh, life's too short thing I was saying about speculating on land. You know, we certainly, you know, we we certainly you know, been involved in, you know, political, you know, trying to get, trying to build relationships in the political realm, trying to, you know, trying to look at the outcomes of, of political change that could make places uh, be more uh, supportive of development or not. But we try not to go too deep on that. You know, we, we don't, we're not a group that takes strong positions on topics and tries to kind of like try to cast any influence on the outcome. Cause I think, you know, th- there's a bigger bot the, the, the bigger, the bigger, I, I guess this is what I fall back on is like the region is growing. It, and I think, um, you know, over periods of times, there's some communities that may be reticent to have sea change in their community, but I think that that can ebb and flow. And so, yeah, we, we, we try not to get too reactive on that front. I, I, it's a big, it is a big factor, mm. but I think at the end of the day, I think like many, uh, my, my view, just of politics in general, I think there's many sides of politics where you can get really caught up in the personas and the, and the overt kind of 
messaging and the speculating on what could happen that kind of misses the fact that often it's still a lot of the same too. Mm. And I think we kind of like, you know, I think, I think it's, it's easy to get into the trap of casting a lot of kind of bets on risk as it relates to, you know, choices and in real estate investment on the political lens that we, we haven't found, um, we haven't found too necessary to, to, to be deep into. I mean, not, not like we ignore politics by any means. And we still, uh, I, I love being welcomed into conversations with politicians because they ultimately are shaping places. But I really, I actually care more about that element. Like what are the kind of, what are the, what are the outcomes that are lifting a community to a better place and kind of ancillary to that development finds its way into the, in, in, into the mix most of the time. And, you know, I think that dialogue is kind of more progressive about like, you know, community goals, how the work we do fits within those community goals. And, and over time, you know, I find often this stuff kind of washes, it washes itself out. Right. And it is a long game, right? Like sometimes Mm -hmm. for three or four years, a place because of the political climate, which you could say, which could is a function also of the public sentiment might not be interested in, in much change, but that, often comes and goes. So we, we kind of see that resiliency in the communities around Metro Vancouver. It doesn't make it easy. Yeah. It doesn't make it easy to do work, but I think uh, my experience is that it gets overly, overly hyped in terms of the influence yeah. on the outcomes. Yeah. I mean, kind of the, the forest for the trees, but it does seem like, I, you know, some of the larger developers we've had on the show, just this, just an observation is, and I think, you kind of fit into this trend is like cutting out the noise yeah. and, and playing a longer game. And, which, and like a bedrock confidence, <laughs> right. In, in the, just the region. Totally. Yeah. And we start, we our approach with, you know, working through approvals and in the, in the, in the community planning process, like we really try to start from the ground up, you know, like I really feel like the people who make often some of the most change in the outcomes of projects and the communities are, are the file managers, the people who, are kind of responsible for shepherding your application through the process or responsible for, for championing the plan and getting the community engagement. Like we try to put our focus on, you know, building good relationships with those folks and hearing them out and trying to, trying to like match our desires with theirs and thereby the communities at the same time. And if we don't have to call a director of planning or a mayor or whatever, I mean, I think they're probably happy for it too. Like the the, the whole system is supposed to work. Let's remember like, you know, it's supposed to be equitable. It's supposed to it's supposed to have checks and balances. And we hang our hat on that framework first and foremost. And I think that's actually been a recipe, part of the recipe for our success in the last number of years. This will make uh, the next question about interest rates sound kind of... <laughs> well, I was actually maybe just to kind of in, in keeping in that vein, in a perfect world, Nick, what does Vancouver look like in, say, 2035? 2035. So that's... Not to be too specific, 12, 12 but in years. the next two decades, in, in your mind. Mm. I think what happens is the... I think the biggest outcome we'll see in the 10 to 12-year range is the maturity of some of the large urban centers and the projects that are currently in planning take shape. And the scale will be unlike anything anyone's seen before in the region, pretty much. And I think, I think there's a next generation of product generally 
that is a totally different league of complexity, of design quality, urban design outcomes, just livability, like the, 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 the stuff that we're observing in terms of like the future of mixed use communities, I think is going to a totally different level. And I think we've seen that in the region. You know, you've seen, you've seen kind of mixed use nodes of early 2000s, late 90s, their scale, their approach evolved again through like the kind of mid-aughts with, you know, the Brentwood areas evolving, et cetera, the Metrotown a bit. Well, Metrotown a bit, Metrotown a lot, but there's more to come in those some of these communities too. Uh, there's there's interesting stuff happening in Vancouver, of course, around Oak Ridge and what's happening, what's happening there. But, you know, Oak Ridge and then a number of projects in planning right now and some that are under construction in, in these major regional centers and from Surrey to Vancouver are game changing. And I don't think people, I don't even know if through the process of selling the condos or doing the pre-leasing for rents or commercial, whatever, I don't even know if people fully understand how different and immersive these communities are going to feel. And it's all for the better. Like it's, it's really awesome. I think it's, I think it's acknowledging some of these things like families may find themselves in a multifamily living condition for the long run. And so these communities are more complete. They've got more amenities there's better services. It's there's there's a spectrum of uses. I think people are getting wise to the hair shops and nail salons in a podium below a tower. That that isn't even good for them. As not sure everybody's people need hair salon, uh, nail salons and 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 hair studios, but only so many. And it, going getting to the point that you know it isn't equitable that you know in Vancouver you can walk out your door and get a bunch of services within you know. 10, 15 minutes of walk, walk. Whereas you go out to some of these other urban destinations and they haven't yet filled out the full complement of kind of activities for all different, you know, ages and types and abilities. And, and I think that that's part of the next wave. I'm excited for that generation of, of kind of urban form to come to life. Cause it, it will, it, I feel like it will bring a totally different, um, I think it will rip off the bandaid around the notion that, you know, some of these other regional centers are going to be as important to the outcome of this place, uh, this of this region in the long run as Vancouver has. Like, it'll really come start coming to life in 10, 15 years. These places will just be their own hubs for all kinds of different activity as a place to live and and, and work and learn and, and, and whatnot. And we're just on that cusp now. Oh, that's exciting. And is that, and I'm just thinking, think, thinking through kind of the, the, that change you're talking about, is that like a product of, in your mind, density like that if you build it they will come and the infrastructure will be there with the store where you can you know within 10 15 minute walk you'll have basically everything you need i think there's a couple factors at play like density somewhat i think i think uh yes generally the communities are higher density and and more scale but sometimes that's for some really interesting reasons like um you know, municipalities have been looking for more tower separation. We're, we're focused on, we're, there's some things that like the kind of hierarchy of needs is evolving and, you know, in, in, in throughout the region where it's like, we're focusing on solar access. We're focusing on tower spacing and pedestrian comfort and wind and what good commercial looks like. There's like, there's, there's, there's a deeper knowledge for the average kind of planner and developer about what this what, the, what all these factors mean and what they have to do. And if they're wise, they, they actually, you take these factors, which you now have to consider and make them, you know, treat them as assets, not treat them as something that you're trying to avoid. And I think there's also for the larger developers also 
far less fear about what the commercial components represent in these mixed-use communities. I think the general affinity of the past was, you know, build condos. I don't care about the commercial, so I'm going to try to minimize that as much as possible, and hopefully I can sell it and not lose money. And it was legitimately. I mean, there were times where it was just not carrying its weight. And there's all kinds of reasons to say COVID has had effects on on the long-term prospect for that. But at the end of the day, community-serving commercial is something that every everybody still needs. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think there's greater sophistication and confidence in that today going forward than there has been over the last 20 years. Interesting. Yeah, it's interesting kind of that it's, I'm trying to th- kind of get a sense of how organically mm. it happens, right? Because in some ways what you, the, the old way of like minimize commercial, don't really think about it. You know, if we can get it off the books and not lose money, we're, we're good. Is kind of like, you know, presumably over time, organically, the kind of storefronts that the community needs would emerge, you'd think. But actually, it's not the case. No, it's not. It is a still like a, as it is, it is somewhat still the lemming factor where like somebody, you know, it was this incremental series of like somebody stuck their neck out there, gave someone, you know, gave the next person confidence that they could deliver that and they could commit, make those commitments economically and to the city to deliver that and kind of incremental. So, so I think they've got all this kind of these incremental steps then leading to maybe this is, maybe it's generational. Maybe it's actually a mind shift in, you know, people who are casting influence over the development activities in planning and development community, where now it's more like purposeful. It's like people aren't just looking at the last project done in the area to influence what they should do next. They're going farther and wider and taking cues from other places in the world uh, for precedence, acknowledging some of these things about trying to the the less transitory nature of condominium living and more permanent community building. And and I think that is tightening that Mm. that innovation. I have one more question. I know we've taken up a lot of your time here and we do have the five wire, which is quick questions, but I have one more kind of uh, more just, um, just thinking about this conversation, right? Mark on obviously is, is active in across the region, different asset classes, this conversation has been so wide reaching or far reaching, I should say. And it seems like your grasp of kind of all these elements is, is so sophisticated. I'm wondering like, what does an actual day in your life look like? Like, are you in meetings most of the day? Are you studying this? Are you meeting with people that are studying this? What, what is a day in, in the life of the VP of development at Marcon look like? Well, it, I liken it. There's two things I think about when you say that one is I, tr- I liken it to a, a treadmill you know, if you've never been on the treadmill before, you're out of shape, you start and you're at speed one or two, and that's really hard and you work on it. And Well, if you have the persistence, you work on that and you try the next speed and you struggle with it, but you get there and you get there. And so I, we kind of, I kind of look at some of these parallels and I say we, cause it's not just the, some of these, these topics today. I mean, this is, this is stuff I've had again, the benefit of like really great people we, in on our team who all want to like participate in this dialogue and this digging and this. And they're all excited about. Yeah. So it's not that, you know, this doesn't come out of just one person trying to think through all this stuff. It's, it's, it's cumulative, but it's like you get used to a different pace and you get used to doing the work and thinking forward and thinking kind of around. We, we were founded in quality. So here's the nuts and bolts is like, we're founded in quality. We don't just want to stand for be some sort of like tokenistic innovation, whatever company. No, we want to build good buildings. We want good processes and systems. We want to grow rationally. 
keep ourselves to a, you know, having a low ego organization with lots of contribution to the team. And if that fosters itself, the ability to innovate a bit and have some, and frankly, it's fun. I think it's like, it's actually what keeps you wanting to do it and like show up every day is you, you, you dig deeper. You try to go into these, you know, topics and think through them and what it means for your organization. So, so the treadmill thing is like, you just get a little bit better at doing all of these tasks and you can then start running a little faster. And you know, one year to the next, you start feeling like you're at a different pace on the treadmill and, and that carry, and our whole team, you know, comes along with it. And then the other thing is that someone told me this, uh, you know, ran into a person who worked in a role at Amazon. And he said that one of the kind of mantras within that organization was think big and dive deep. So in that organization, it's unacceptable to just be ethereal and nor is it okay just to do just to do the work. Their, their expectation at a certain level is that you have to do both. And I think that's a great parallel. What I really like is like foundationally, we just want to do good work. Nobody's afraid of rolling up their sleeves and getting stuff done. It's not just a boardroom full of musings. And we actually like, yeah, I mean, like I don't even take that many, like don't take a lot of time for like random networking. It's just like, you just, we we're happy to do work because that that's how you pay the bills. Uh, but at the same time, you kind of build that with a richness of thinking and create an environment where there's a lot of healthy dialogue and input and, and I guess, curiosity mm-hmm. and, and, and kind of in, in inquisition. And so I like that idea, think big, dive deep. And that's, that's kind of, you know, that's something I think we, we try to emulate in, in our work. That's a, that's a great, great answer. And, and thanks for explaining a treadmill to Matt, who's never been on one. Uh, appreciate you don't look, that. It looks like you've been on a treadmill. <laughs> maybe we'll, maybe we'll wrap, wrap up with the five wire. Do you have time for that, Nick? Sure, sure, sure. The five wire is brought to you by Scalina Real Estate. Hey, that sounds familiar. Scalina Real Estate is a full service real estate company serving Vancouver, offering comprehensive tried and tested buyer and seller systems. With over a decade in the top 10% of realtors in the lower mainland and a perfect five-star Google review, Scalina Real Estate can help with all your real estate needs. We also have an extensive network of the best industry professionals and trades right across the country. There's no reason to not get in touch. Head over to scalinarealestate.com to find out more. First question for you, Nick. Uh, One book you would recommend to all of our listeners? Oh, come back to that at the, uh, go back to that at the end. I'll think while I'm trying to answer the other All right, all right. Well, well, we'll move to this one then, Nick. Uh, in the last five years or so, what new belief, behavior, or habit has improved your life? Uh, getting to bed on time. It's a good one. That's a good one. Good sleep. What have you binge watched lately or your favorite movie? Well, it's been a rainy winter and we have a six-month-old at home. So there's been all kinds of watching of <laughs> films. So I watched Coda the, the other day. Oh, nice. And that was... That was seriously impressive film. That was one of those ones you kind of put in the memory bank as a good one. So, wow, we've been uh, meaning to watch that. So that's, uh, that's it's, exciting. It's it's very worthwhile. Yeah. What have you? Uh, or sorry, I guess favorite band or music? Well, I'm actually classically trained in piano. Uh, I grew up with a lot of music. So, genre, I actually love classical music and jazz. But mainstream, I'm like I don't know, Coldplay sucker or or even uh, more popular than that sometimes, but I'm, I'm pretty much all over the map. Yeah. Interesting. Wow, classically trained. Jeez, Nick, you're a 
Cosmopolitan Madam Wonder. Rena- here. Renaissance, man. <laughs> Renaissance man. That's what comes to mind. That's a little. Le- that's a stretch. <laughs> Something you have purchased for under fifteen hundred dollars in the last little while that has changed your life. Fifteen hundred bucks. AirPods. Nice. That's a great one. And uh, then re- returning to the book, I think that's re- returning uh, to one book you'd recommend for our listeners. Someone in our group gave me a book about the um, founder of Four Seasons. And I've been kind of chugging through that when I've had the time. I don't get to read long form very often, but I finally closed that book after picking pieces of it after a long time. And I thought this Canadian guy, fascinating journey. And so, yeah, Isidore Sharp biography is uh, autobiography. It's a fascinating, it's good, good story. Sounds great. And now that you don't have the commute, you can't do audible either. So I guess it's uh, your consumption of media has probably dropped off. It's well, it's a lot shorter. Yeah. And with the baby, it's also a lot shorter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thanks so much for your time, Nick. Uh, yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, guys. Fascinating conversation. And, and obviously, it's kind of a silly question for a company like Marcon, but how can people find out more about what you're doing over at Marcon? We spend a lot of time on this. Marcon.ca. <laughs> none of this. Live at the shore, at the north, at the whatever.ca. No, Marcon.ca. You could, that's it. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for your time. <laughs> thanks a lot, guys. There you have it, folks. Our discussion with Nick Palella, VP of Development over at Marcon. And and I should say, Matt, we do have uh, new equipment here today. And, <laughs> and a live studio audience. And a li- <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is like going to be like cheers. Like when there's like a joke, it's going to be like, <laughs> you'll be playing Norm. Here's, here's the thing about our conversation with Nick. There's so many takeaways. I actually, I can't believe it, but an hour and 20 minutes flew by. Hopefully it did for you, the listener as well, but it definitely did for us in studio. No, there's no doubt it did for the listener. There was so many interesting, like I said, we we left that conversation. I was truly thinking every answer, there was no pat answer. Every answer was kind of very, very thoughtful. And, and really like you, you said before, challenging the status quo on kind of all fronts. It was, uh. It was really, really a great conversation. Well, we're going to have to convince uh, Nick to come back and uh, join us for another conversation because, uh, yeah, that was fantastic. What else do we got for the day, though, Matt, before we cut? Before we cut for the day, Adam, we have VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. This is our website where all things real estate related live, including the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast. So head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com where you can sign up for things like the Livewire. This is our weekly mailer. Right. No obligation. There's VIP residential pre-sale projects. There's VIP commercial pre-sale projects. There's deal of the month. There's stats before anyone else has them. There's stats that no one else has. Basically, everything you want, real estate related. But also, Adam, we have private client services. Because Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information for free at your fingertips. It's available at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. It is the best way to look for real estate in Vancouver. I love it. I'm actually getting like, it's insane. Well, the here's, feedback here's that we've the been thing. Getting. Here's the thing. And this is, a, I promise you this renovation project I mentioned at the start is not going to be just a long pitch for PCS, but no. PCS played a role. PCS actually was an integral role in, in uh, finding, in that, finding deal. that deal. And we'll talk a little bit about how you can set up PCS to find a deal for yourself. So stay tuned for that, Matt. How can people get in touch? 
They can get in touch with me at any time, 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. We also got the Kokomo line info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. And I think it goes without saying, episodes just keep on coming here. I'm, yeah. I'm excited about the future. I'm excited about today's episode. These are... You know, you're just I, excited. I, I, I was happy with the show before, but I feel like we're going to the next level. You're, you're a career optimist. And, and here's the thing. Uh, some of the episodes coming in the future are some, well, I'm, I'm not even going to spend time on teasers, but we've got some fantastic guests. Super excited. If you do enjoy the podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this on Spotify. And also please share it with a friend. That's how we grow. And uh, yeah, have a great week, guys. Thanks so much. And we'll see you next time. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today.